Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So, this is a pretty special episode of Simulcast. In this episode, I'm joined by the co-hosts of the Emergency Mind podcast. That's Dan Dworkus and Andrea Austin. And what we do is I start off this podcast by interviewing the two of them about what they mean when they talk about the emergency mind and the work they're doing on that. And then we turn the tables and uh, Dan interviews myself and Andrea about how using simulation can help us to develop this emergency mindset where those of us who work in these critical conditions, and that's most of us in healthcare, how we can use simulation in order to achieve this both as individuals and as teams. All right, so I guess a couple of introductions in order. Uh, Dan Dorcas, you're an emergency physician. You work in Los Angeles, California. You're a podcaster, The Emergency Mind, now with over 40 episodes, interviews with practitioners, experts, um, many from outside healthcare, and now an author, The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. How are you? I'm, I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to talk with you and uh, to join you and Andrea on this sort of like like juntos joint podcast that we're doing here yeah excellent i know this is a, a thrill for me too and andrea austin you're uh also an emergency physician from san diego california sometimes host of the podcast uh like me simulation enthusiast uh, also with a background in military service and reading your fem in m and em uh profile also with interest in veterans health firearm prevention and gender equity how are you so wonderful to be on the show. I've been a fangirl of yours for years, so this is awesome. All right. Well, you can come back anytime with nice things like that to say. <laughs> All right. So the way we're going to do this is uh, sort of think about two things. One is the whole emergency mind concept that Dan, with Andrea's help, has popularized and written about. Uh, and then we're going to sort of turn it the other way and really think about how does simulation help or not as we're trying to prepare people to have this emergency mind. For simulcast listeners, I guess we're thinking we use simulation a lot to train for skills, for teamwork behaviours, but also for mindsets. And these are the sort of cognitive approaches that we need to do our work. So, Dan, uh, you know, you've become this enthusiast and certainly an expert in one such mindset. Um, how do you describe this concept of the emergency mind to people? Yeah, so I, I generally, um, and, and perhaps by like a brief bit of background, I, I found myself um, somewhere in sort of late residency when I started taking over the really critical cases and the resuscitations. I found myself realizing that like I was using the knowledge I'd learned from medical school and residency, but I was deploying it in a way that mirrored much more closely what I'd learned from growing up in the martial arts and what I'd learned from being, you know, doing jujitsu or, or, or Muay Thai or striking. And I and I sort of sat there after one case in particular, remembering like, why did that just happen that way? Like, why did I feel like I was back in a gym as opposed to in the ER where I normally spend my time? And, and I sort of filed that away and didn't think much about it. And then, and then it happened again and again. And I ended up getting really sort of more curious about this and asking a lot of the other people who I really respected when I watched them run critical cases. Like, how are you so calm? What do you do? And a striking number of them had some other skill set and some other background. One or two of them were ex-military. One or two of them were uh, martial artists. And one or two of them were actually uh, rock climbers. Um, and uh, which, you know, if you take a, a slice through 
the emergency medicine population. That's a, that's like a pretty average like set of you know tree rings to come up with. But but really, all these people had sort of confessed like actually yeah we're we're using the skills we learned outside the emergency department to really empower us to do this work on the inside of the emergency department. And then and then the wheels started turning and I got really curious about it. And I sort of wondered, well, why is that? How do, and how do we do that a little bit differently? And and came over time and conversations and digging in to get to this idea that like, really that applying knowledge under pressure is its own skill, separate from the knowledge and separate from anything else, that it's its own skill and it needs to be treated like any other skill does, which means we need to study it and train it and, and derive experiments and and push ourselves forward and use everything we know about how humans learn a skill to learn that skill. So, so when I talk to folks about the emergency mind, that's really what I'm talking about is the skill and not the skill of applying knowledge under pressure, wherever you apply that pressure from, from the ER to the, um, you know, to pre-hospital care, to the jujitsu gym or anywhere else. Yeah, very interesting, isn't it? Because you're talking about a maybe a sort of generic core, but then with some specific applications that um, are dependent on context. And as you say, some of that we share with our fellow healthcare professionals, but not all, um, because being in the recess room, as you say, it, it's much more than the sum of its parts. Uh, Andrea, can I ask you the same question? Uh, what has drawn you to this? And uh, you've got also, I guess, some uh, experience in other disciplines that has probably been useful here. Yeah. So the first time I started thinking about this really concretely was in my last year of residency. And I went to a four-year program um, in Naval Medical Center, San Diego. So I was actually on active duty during residency training. And most of my faculty members had deployed during the height of Afghanistan and Iraq and actually deployed multiple times in very hard deployments. So that was the type of people that trained me. Uh, so I think Dan's concept of the emergency mind, that wasn't the language I used. The language I got exposed to was the idea of stress inoculation. And my grand rounds uh, before graduating was on stress inoculation and application in medical education. The other thing I'll say is emergency medicine, at least in the Navy, is probably, I will say, the most strongly linked to the operational community. When I deployed, I was attached to a Marine unit. So I think a lot of the concepts that Dan and I spent a lot of time thinking and talking about derive from operational communities. And so that was really my first foray into this is being around military doctors and operational people that spoke this language. And specifically, and I know it's a book that Dan's read, I would recommend people read On Combat. And that book really talks about this idea of mental toughness. Yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? And you, I think what you're saying is that you uh, had a lot then in common with the non-healthcare uh, members of your team, as it were, uh, in your naval and defence experience there. And uh, as you say, this coming back to this concept of it being so much more than the sum of its parts. Um, now, you've both talked about the lessons from other disciplines, military mindsets. Uh, and I've noticed in the podcast, Dan, you interview a lot of these people. Have there been some surprises or fascinating things or does it really just sort of confirm what you already know? Yeah, I think there's I think there's a ton in there. And, and I th it's interesting because despite... Um, 
how advanced we are and how how rapidly we are advancing our ability to care for patients in emergency medicine across a wide variety of of experiences and systems of care and our linkages between pre-hospital care and code team activations and everything else. In a lot of cases, our focus on the mental aspects of the game, on essentially what is the emergency mind, lags behind that somewhat. And and there's some interesting reasons for that that we can that we can get into. I have some some theories about that. But really, you know, that sense of the mental aspect of performance and what it takes to perform mentally at an optimal level is really more advanced than a lot of other fields. So one of the more shocking and sort of like incredibly humbling moments of this whole thing thus far has been for me interviewing Kristen Holmes, who is the VP of human performance at Whoop and was was a former USA field hockey coach. And the way that she asked the way that she structured her pre-performance regimen, which is essentially some large version of asking the question, um, what does it take for me to do on my off days to perform at the level I want to on my on days? And the way that she had dialed in asking, answering, and asking and answering that question and then evolving systems that asked and answers that question was so far beyond anything that I had received in training and so far beyond anything I was offering the residents that I'm currently training. And it was so humbling to see that that that's coming from because USA field hockey is an amazing program and a wonderful team. I, I'd like to think that the emergency facilities that I operate on at least are at the level of that, if not hopefully higher in what we do, but we're just not getting that piece of it dialed in the right way. And when I, when I think about you know, the emergency mind is a system. I tend to break it into buckets, right? So I have prepare to perform, perform, recover from performing, and then evolve, right? Prepare, perform, recover, evolve. And as I think about those buckets, the number of systems that are outside of emergency care that have dialed in incredible expertise in one of those is just just massive and amazing. And that's, I think, why it's such a joy to keep having people come in and, and who, are from, um, uh, who are from outside the emergency world. And why is this, Dan? What is this big gap? Are we? Because I don't think we're too stupid to realise we should be performing. Uh, is it because we spend so much time trying to memorise the Krebs cycle, or because we value a whole bunch of uh, sort of expertise that is domain specific, as opposed to this integrating things? What? what why? What's stopping us uh, training like the field hockey team or having coaches like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's impossible to get any set of doctors together anywhere in the universe without mentioning the Krebs cycle. I think if you have like an N more than two of doctors, like it's legally required for somebody to say Krebs cycle and then laugh about it. So I, thank you for taking that off the plate <laughs> in, this, in this requirement. <laughs> you, you know, I, it, it's a good question. I, I um. You know, I, I am a I am a young human in the field of emergency medicine, and there's and there's pioneers that have you know hewed the path out of the jungle towards what emergency medicine is, uh, and I, I think that along the way we've probably picked up both some of the good and bad of the rest of medicine as she is practiced, and some of that is that we have inherited you know a lot of this mindset of like oh well you'll just figure it out. Right. And we've sort of inherited this myth that that time on target and generalized training is sufficient to uh, develop the skills it takes to really excel in these high pressure, unique environments. And I, and I don't think that's necessarily true. 
I don't think it's malicious. I don't think that we are willfully ignorant of it. I think we just have this belief and we're taught this myth that if you just see enough patients, you figure out how to do this. And, you know, you sort of bumble your way through it a lot of the times. Yeah, and you can. And most of us, if you expose us to friction over and over again, if you sandpaper us, we tend to get more polished over time. Fine. But that's maybe not an elegant or useful or really productive way to do it. And it's not how most other teams train their their people to perform under pressure. So to me, this idea of like time on target is necessary, but insufficient to develop the expertise for it. And Mm. and I think we're just starting to come to a place where people are coming together to develop the vocabulary ideas and mindsets around doing that dedicated, deliberate practice around this. Mm, Absolutely. And I think one of the things, and I'm going to go to Andrea here, because I think there's also a difference about how we think about individuals and teams in healthcare, unfortunately, and obviously this is one of my interests. But I think one of the barriers is this concept of individual heroics and what Scott Weingart would talk about, talk about the difference between strategy and execution. We, are, we think we're really smart, we think we've got the right answer, and everyone else should just make our lovely answer happen. Whereas this execution is really what distinguishes, obviously, greatness in that recess room or any high performance situation uh, from just knowing what should be done, actually making it happen. And Andrea, I'm imagining that your uh, time in the military, this would have been really a central focus. How did you shift your, uh, or how did you think about your individual emergency mind as opposed to your team emergency mind? You would have had like-minded individuals around you, I would imagine. That's a really interesting question. And so like-minded individuals, um, I would say that there is a unification that happens in the military, you know, for better or for worse, you are united around this team concept that we're all in the Navy or when I was on deployment, we're all in the military because then we interfaced uh, with Army primarily uh, at the site that I was at. Um, I would say a central concept, which, you know, we all talk about a lot is this idea of the shared mental model. I mean, there's always this tension between the individual and the group on, you know, where are we going? What are we thinking? So the only way I know to really bridge that even among like-minded individuals is to have those constant check-ins and sharing of the mental model So, I mean, my learners probably, you know, there she goes again saying the shared mental model, but I say it so much because what you think is automatic and the cues that you're picking up on the situation, an example I use a lot is when you as the team leader all of a sudden realize that things are much worse than your team realizes and you flip into like recess mode and your team's like, she's talking, you know, more curtly, you know, is some, why is she being kind of, you know, pick your expletive. Um, but I didn't take the time to do that very short phrase that this child is much sicker than we realized. And now we need to start moving faster. We need a line within two minutes. So that's a very like concrete way of getting that team onto that shared mental model. I mean, and there's ways through simulation and drilling that you kind of get people there faster or they hear the words that you're using and they know that's a cue that you're saying it in the same way that we've 
drilled in practice that we're going to say when a situation's become, you have a word for that, don't you, Dan? Um, like kind of when something's moved from, we're not in our normal m- mode, we've moved into something more severe, kind of a concise way of getting the team on that page. The, uh, you're describing, so there's a great word that describes that. I'm not at all, I can't at all take credit as it being my word, but it's the idea that you crossed into the liminal space, right? That where you've, where you've moved beyond this barrier and now you're in a space where there's only one way out of it and that's forward. You can't back out. You can't say, okay, look, I really am done. I don't really want to resuscitate this child anymore. I think I'm going to go have a nap. Like negative, you're in this space where the only way out is actually continuing to move forward through. So that, that doesn't come from me, actually. That comes from the, the folks at the Limno Collective uh, and also the folks at um, the Mission Critical Teams Institute and Arena Labs, all of whom are these amazing thinkers who are, are deep diving into these kind of spheres. Um, I, I like the idea of, of, in theory, sort of yelling out, all right, folks, we're in the liminal space now, but I don't think anybody would actually like follow me through with that. Um, but, you know, <laughs> concept. as sort of an interesting subset to that, I think one example where we are getting better at doing this, where we're getting better at recognizing, hey, we're in a space where we need to activate different parts of our brains individually and different parts of our team brain collectively um, is something that, you know, we, we borrow from the airline industry, which is sort of like the 10,000 foot rule, right? Which says that if you're below 10,000 feet where you're landing or taking off, then all of your communication needs to be mission critical communication. And it really is only allowed to be about the task at hand. Um, so Scott Weingart has a... Um, a, a, a blog post called comms check where he talks sort of about like some of the terminology around that we've started adopting that quite a bit at at, at county when i'm on and, and with the teams that i'm working with is this idea of like okay sterile cockpit that's what's called it's called the sterile cockpit rule right like like yes. we are now in a sterile cockpit situation meaning and if you're able to train that ahead of time meaning we're now quiet we're calm everything is only mission critical communication and we're into this space where we need to we need to be all systems go for it so if I may piggyback on that, there is a similar concept that we worked on at Navy Trauma Training Center. And at the time, and this is still the case in, in the military medicine world, the focus really is on small teams. Uh, if you look at where military medical teams are, U.S. medical teams, they are dispersed around the world right now. And they want emergency medicine and damage control surgical teams very close to where all of our military personnel are. And they're all over the place. So we really do have these small teams that are asked to do damage control surgery, potentially in a hotel room or set up in a small tent or in a very small room on a ship that's not designed to do surgery. And so one of the phrases, and I can't take credit for this, this is from one of my past bosses, um, Commander Travis Polk, would say that resuscitation is a mindset and not a place. So we would train teams, and this would I've, I've actually been in the situation where this has happened, where we've moved somebody to the operating room so quickly and again, in these small teams, the emergency physician goes to the operating room. So that's like a whole nother thing um, that you, because you walk into the operating room and in usual situations, the primary assessment has already been done. The primary assessment has to occur in this operative space. And you watch the group struggle because it's like, well, we're in the operating room. 
we use drapes, you know, we start putting drapes on. It's like, well, you haven't done a primary assessment. So we really, that was one of the key things that Navy Trauma Training Center was resuscitation is a mindset, not a place. You can resuscitate somebody on the floor. You can resuscitate them in a hotel room, but your team needs to understand where you are in that algorithm. Like we're in the primary assessment and we're doing it in a very strange place right now, but we can do that. Yeah, and it also involves, I think, some toggling between the standard operating procedures that help us as cognitive aids versus the cognitive agility to know when to uh, let go of some of them and hang on to some others. And that also involves a sort of team emergency mind as well. All right, well, the last thing I really want to ask you both is maybe coming back to the influence that all this work has had on yourselves. And you've made some allusions to this, but in doing these podcast episodes, in writing a book, um, helping countless other clinicians think about their emergency minds. So for both of you, can you tell me what have you learned or changed in your own practice uh, as a result? And Dan, maybe I can start with you. So I I have not at all um, deployed in the way that Andrea has, and I'm I'm honoured to get a chance to work with the Navy Trauma Training Centre in whatever small bit I'm able to work with them. Um, I did run a cardiac arrest in a supercuts once, which was an interesting version of that on the floor of, amid a bunch of haircuts that were actively going on. And somebody tried to come in and get a haircut in the middle of it, which was an even weirder experience. We politely declined. But I, I think that the reality is like part of being an emergency doctor is, is that, is that sense of like resuscitation is a mindset, not a space. And, and man does, that's just so true. I, I love that. And I think that that idea of, you know, you you sort of port that idea over to the emergency mind. And it really is this thing that you are and that you take with you wherever you go. It's this toolbox that you have. And it's this ability you have to become a certain type of human when you're called upon to hold the line, whether that's, you know, war zone or super cuts, which is a strange set of things to juxtapose from each other. But to me, um, there's, there's sort of two big things that have happened as I've gotten more involved in this. Um, one, I've gotten a lot more conscious about my own training, development, and practice of this art. And I've got to go a lot deeper into who, uh, how I can improve and how I can get better as I'm seeing patients and, and uh, running teams, whether those teams are small and I'm in a solo coverage ER or I'm taking a more of a supervisory role in a big academic center. Uh, and it's really helped me push myself to continue to grow as a physician and to continue to stretch and to, to try to get a sense of like, what is it like to keep hammering on my craft over and over again? Um, the more important answer, uh, though, is that I think as we all sit in the middle of these spaces of life and death, that we go up to bat against these big forces of what it means to be a small human in a large universe over and over again, is it can become really challenging to find your way through that in a way that's not... Um, sort of overwhelming and, and, and kind of crushing some days. And to me, I kept having these circumstances where I, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to, how to move forward through a situation or to honor a patient that I'd been part of their team, even though we weren't able to save them or, or something of the like. And this has given me the largest opportunity ever to play in a space and to not, to not waste suffering more than anything to get a sense of that all of the cases and all of the suffering that I'm seeing becomes fuel for a project that's going to help the next generation of doctors be better than I am. 
and even the doctors around me be better and to and be better. And it's this this sort of virtuous cycle that like, yeah, you're experimenting and you're trying and you don't have to be perfect, but can you push yourself and your team a little bit harder today? Um, it's a bit of mm, a that's great. answer. No, no, no. I think you're describing something practical, but also something pretty philosophical, which is pretty important to be underpinning this kind of work that you're doing. Um, Andrea, can I ask you the same question? What have you done in terms of your own practice, do you think, as a result of this work? Something Dan and I were just talking about earlier today is what's really important to me with this work is that we move away from this apprenticeship model of gaining skills in the emergency mind concept. And the example we were talking about is it's pretty well accepted now that you're not going to learn to do your first central line on an actual patient, at least in, I believe, America and and Canada, Western medicine. That's just not going to happen. You will train on a simulator. I would like to see, and what I try to do with my residents is when you see somebody doing a really awesome resuscitation. A lot of times it's like, wow, that person is so great. And yeah, that's great. And Dan and I love to hear that when somebody comes up to us afterwards, like, oh, Dr. Austin, you did such an amazing job with that resuscitation. But what I'd much rather have them take away from that is what did I do well? Why did you think that was so good? Can you describe, use words, <laughs> use your words is, is what I say a lot. Please tell me what you thought was so good about that. And then it's less of like this aspirational, like, oh, maybe one day I'll wake up and I'll be, I'll be like, Dan, no, like operationalize what we're telling you. These, they're, are very systematic ways that we're doing this, just like how you would set up for a central line. There are ways to set up for going into a resuscitation to get your mind right that is going to make it go better. Mm, Absolutely. And I think you're right, uh, just having names for some of these skill sets. And as one who's a little bit older than both of you, uh, I had finished my emergency medicine training more than 20 years ago before I even heard concepts like crisis resource management or behaviours related to leadership, teamwork and communication. Uh, And in my training experience, there was essentially none of this except uh, you should be a strong team leader, whatever the hell that means. And so like you, my interest in this is about how we codify this, how we systematise it so that training can be very explicit towards it. Well, it's been lovely um, to talk to you both about what is the emergency mind and to sort of, I guess, reflect on our conversation. I I think it is a mindset. It is thinking about how we uh, use mental models, how we have our own approach and how we help our teams have that approach. And I think the other thing that's really struck me about our conversation is uh, the lessons from other areas and how we really need to look outside to find how this same codification and systematizing uh, our approach to critical situations uh, can be learned and drawn upon. All right, so I think we're going to change our tack now, Dan. You're going to sort of shift us and ask us a few questions about simulation. Is that what's going to happen? Yeah, let's do it. Looking forward to it. Uh, All right, so I am super excited to be here with both of you all um, doing this version of the Emergency Mind podcast. Uh, Victoria and Andrea, welcome to the show. Honored to have both. I'm I'm really interested today in spending a few minutes to to dig through the idea of the power of simulation now. Now, simulation is something we've talked about in a number of ways. I, I guess I'd ask you all, uh, is there sort of, as you look back on your, as you look back on your arc and you look back on your career, is there a defining moment for you where you sort of like 
beheld the holy grail of simulation? Like, when was it that you looked at it and were like, yes, this is what I want to spend my time doing? And, and what was it that made you think that? Uh, sure. Well, I think the... F- <laughs> I think the first time I thought that it was for the wrong reasons. The first time I thought that was when I saw the first sim man and I went, oh, that's so cool. You can decompress attention in your thorax. <laughs> so I'll own that. I was drawn to it initially for the reasons that I think are probably the wrong reasons right now. Uh, when did I decide it was the Holy Grail? Well, I still don't know that it's the Holy Grail. When did I decide it was really important? I think uh, right back in the early 2000s uh, when I first started doing simulation training, we were going on the road and going to rural um, hospitals where there were many practitioners who would only be doing resuscitation very occasionally and intubation once every six months or so. And so I felt like this was such an incredible way to get that team the opportunity to practice what they did. Uh, and I guess we were doing some of the things we've been talking about in terms of crisis resource management or whatever. That was certainly the flavour of the month back then. And I guess introducing concepts that people were actually quite good at, but which who hadn't really explicitly talked about it. So I think that was probably the moment when uh, I thought this is really great for teams to work together. Uh, And prior to that, we hadn't had a lot of opportunities where teams did teamwork training. So I think simulation really for me became just the vehicle for which teams could start to practice together and talk together. The second generation of interest that I had was when I started to realise that behaviours were just what we see. And in fact, what simulation really was, to use my friend uh, Eve Purdy's nomenclature, was a cornerstone ritual for groups who are actually evolving into people with shared goals, cultural norms, um, shared identities, uh, and who now had values that were important and the behaviours were markers for. So I think that's my second generation of um, epiphany, which is to say that simulation is so much more powerful than the actual skills and behaviours and even conversations that we practice. Wait, wait, wait. Dig into that for me more. Tell me what you mean by that, but that we're carving out our sort of own joint cultural identity by doing sim. Yeah, so I guess some of the, we've done some research work about this. Uh, so we know that good teamwork behaviours, all the things that we observe uh, in terms of closed-loop communication, effective uh, team leadership, um, effective other things that we can see lead to good behaviours, good, sorry, outcomes in teams. But those behaviours, and if you look at some of the research, people don't do those behaviours just because you train the specific skill set. And if you think about all the acronyms we've been taught for speaking up, all the admonition to closed-loop communication, you don't actually change your behaviour unless you've changed what's underneath it, which is your team mind, um, to use the sort of terminology that you have, which means you have to value the idea of closed-loop communication. You have to value the idea that these things are important. You have to value the idea that you are actually respecting each other and that you can have a conversation with anesthesia about who's doing the damn trauma airway instead of seeing it as a fight between anesthesia and emergency medicine. So these values and beliefs that underpin what we do are things that we shape when we come together in something like a simulation. And it can be intentional, particularly if we point it out and say, you know, this has been remarkable because I think what we've done is had a conversation. People have clearly had conflicting, for instance, perspectives about how to care for the patient, but we have been able to resolve them and that's been our triumph for today, not whether the tube went in. And I think those are the kind of conversations that I am increasingly interested in is how we can use simulation to help shape the culture of groups uh, and between groups in order to achieve the behaviors that we know lead to the outcomes. So cool. Thank you. Thank you for elaborating on that. Uh, Andrea, I want to toss it to you for a second. When, 
what really first got you interested in sim? And then I don't know if you want to riff off of what Victoria just said about sort of the role of sim in building culture. Yeah, I, that, that was so beautifully stated. And I'm definitely going to come back to that and remind me if I need that. Uh, so my interest in sim was later in residency. It was around probably the third year I started to think that this was actually really cool. And I think I had the reaction many p- learners do early on that initially sim was scary to me because, okay, I'm going in and this is, I have to perform. I have to show what I know and my faculty are watching me and my co-residents are watching me. And so this is, this is stressful. Just going to the sim is stressful. Uh, but what I learned very, very quickly was that the benefit that I was getting was way more than the cost, if you will, of being on stage. It was like, this is so beneficial and potentially is going to help me save a child's life that the fact that I messed something up and I have to like be humble about that and debrief it in front of my classmates is such a small price to pay for this huge payoff uh, was what I got to fairly quickly. And so by third year, I'm like, this is really, really cool that we get this opportunity to practice before, you know, this could potentially happen in real life. And what I noticed is the faculty that gravitated towards sim tended to be the people that I most wanted to be like, um, and that they were very good at running resuscitations. And they were the person that other people in the department came to when it was time to put the transvenous pacer in because they've done it in sim hundreds of times. And so it was kind of out of that like selfishness that I was like, I think this would be a really cool specialty to do because then I'm constantly practicing the scariest things and I'm learning them in such detail. Like we all know as educators, you have to learn something so much more to be able to communicate and teach it that this will be a really cool way to spend spend my life. And so it kind of came out of a fear-based <laughs> initial place. But then I think much like um, Victoria, kind of like phase two of you know, falling in love with simulation was all the other stuff that gets to come come with it. And something that I really like doing now is incorporating um, our debriefing practices from sim into the resuscitation space. Um, and I think I've been able to create a lot more meaning and help myself and my team process hard things um, because of what I've been able to learn as a simulation educator. So I guess to loop back to what Victoria said is simulation, I've never really thought of it in the way she phrased it. It does end up, when it's done correctly, it ends up driving massive culture shifts. And I mean, at the end of the day, that's I think we all want to work at hospitals, like Dan said, that are really good hospitals, right? You don't want to work at a crummy place. You don't want to work at a place that you wouldn't take your own family member, but you also want to work at a place where um, you trust other people 
and um, you feel like people have your back. And you practice that in simulation and you develop those skills. And then I have seen too many times now that there is no way unless I, I just haven't seen it happen where you're working in a place where you're doing sims on a regular basis that it doesn't transform the culture. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. The the almost dichotomy of the two roles of sim that you all have both just highlighted, right? Because there's the sim for the things that might happen, like a resuscitative hysterotomy or a, you know an emergency cricotherotomy when you when you've missed the airway in a epiglottitis patient or something. And then there's the sim that focuses on the stuff that absolutely will happen that you just need to practice anyway, right? The high pressure communication and the debrief after a difficult event and the activation of a code STEMI team that like it absolutely will happen. And, and I wonder how and in what ways you all tune the sims slightly differently to focus on either or one of those things. Or maybe you do them both together. Maybe you do a sim on a resuscitative hysterotomy and then incorporate a debriefing part of the sim afterwards. Like, how conscious are you of of the of the goal of that on that spectrum? Mm, good question, Dan. And I think it comes down to intentionality and in design and delivery and debriefing. And I think it comes down to when you're designing a particular program, what is it that you're actually trying to achieve? Because I agree, most people, particularly in emergency medicine, think we are getting ready for high acuity, low occurrence events, and everyone wants to do the resuscitative hysterotomy or the thoracotomy simulation. And yet, arguably, we have much less to learn in those situations, because I think that does come down to have you got a generic mindset where you're prepared to do what you need to do? Have you done the skills practice, excuse me, in the sim lab? But in terms of team training, which is more what I do, it's probably lower yield than really trying to rigorously reflect on our everyday work. And um, Peter Diekman and others have written about this, about learning from success and uh, really trying to understand when things go well, why they go well, and understanding so-called systems two thinking, what's the resilience in our organisation and how can we draw upon that rather than just thinking we can norm to a set of behaviours. So your question, though, was how do you do that? I mean, I think, say, if I take the example of our emergency medicine program, we have a combination of the things that worry us as well as the things that we do commonly. And then I would like to think that in our debriefing, we uh, try and discuss both of those things in terms of you will need to have a mindset for the high acuity, low occurrence events. But also, why don't we take the chance to really reflect on when it goes well, why does it go well, and how can we replicate that as much as possible? And I think, unfortunately, in debriefing, people often tend to shy away from things that went well going, we don't need to talk about that, it went well. Oh my goodness, we should talk about that when it goes well, because that's probably the key to our success in 95% of the situation. So I think it's a combination of really being clear in your uh, philosophy or your purpose for any given program and then having the skill sets to be uh, adept in your debriefing to make the most of whatever you do do. Um, but I, I want to focus slightly differently than that on this, on an idea that that um, I think is important sort of no matter what we're building in this space, which is which is enabling a growth mindset versus a performance mindset. Right. So Andrea said a little bit earlier on that, like the first time that she did sim, she was kind of nervous about it. I certainly remember that feeling. I remember feeling that there was a, a, like sort of a, for lack of a better word, like a loser and a winner in sim. Like if you, if you do something, then you win the sim. And if you don't do something, then you lose the sim. And that's sort of antithetical to 
Victoria, a lot of what you're saying, which is that we need to focus both on the success and the failure. And we need to enable people to see this as a space to explore and to iterate and to see what goes right and what goes wrong and take from it in, in all directions. So my question for you all is, how do we uh, foster a system that allows people to carry that growth mindset as opposed to that, I you know, I want to win at SIM kind of mindset? Yeah, so interesting. Uh, a lot of our research work at the moment involves looking at psychological safety in a little bit of a deeper dive than most people tend to mention it, which is just saying in their pre-briefing, hey, it's a safe space here, you guys, don't worry, uh, which I think is exactly the wrong way right. to do that. It doesn't necessarily way. make it true uh, just because somebody says it's it's a safe space. Yeah, Absolutely. In fact, almost certainly doesn't make it true. <laughs> uh, so I think... What we need to do is recognize that exactly what Andrea talked about is at play, which is people have evaluation apprehension. And we have both looked at the sources of threats to psychological safety, some of which are that sense of having to perform in front of others. And that's particularly so for people who are new members of a group um, who may feel that they need to prove themselves. So junior registrars in our parlance uh, feel much more threatened by it, whereas the more senior registrars will feel much more, yeah, let me at it, um, because they see it as a chance to test themselves. They have got that growth mindset because they're in a different place. But there are other influences on threats to psych safety which are to do with how authentic is the experience, what is the um, communicated and obvious ethos of what's going on here. Is it that, oh, we're just going to watch you and then see if you're ready to do nights on your own? Like that is an evaluation and you're there saying it's not a test and yet it clearly is a test if that's what you're saying. So I think people's uh, preparation for SIM and cultural norms in a department around SIM and then explicit pre-briefing is so important in terms of being clear that uh, this will be hard and this will be challenging uh, and we're here to really find out about the interesting stuff that happens when you actually are in that situation. Uh, and so I think for my mind, one of the concepts is about it being safe, not soft, not pretending that it's going to be easy and nice, uh, but it will be quite hard and we will respect your efforts and we will go into them rigorously so that you can be better. That's all easy to say. People's still, their emotional sense becomes uh, harassed and that's normal. So I think just recognising that that happens, but then in our debrief, being sort of careful to stay pretty true to that and being interested in what happened as opposed to trying to norm people just to better behaviour. So I think it does come down to uh, how people helping each other, how facilitators helping each other, and um, being aware that some of it is exactly what you've been talking about. We are getting people ready to perform and not being apologetic for that, but at the same time being interested in uh, what happens as opposed to merely disappointed or impressed by what happens. One of the things that we have found protective in these threats to psychological safety is a sense of purpose about why people are here. So in some of the interviews that we've done and some of the surveys that we've done, people have said, oh my God, I'm so scared at SIM, but it's such a great chance for team bonding. Or they've gone, I'm so scared about SIM, but I feel like it's really good for my team leadership skills. So one of the mitigators of threats to psychic safety is this growth mindset that you're talking about, Dan, is people see the opportunities and they see the benefits of doing that. And so I think if you can communicate that those things are important and that people really feel that, that it is a great bonding experience for the team and that they are getting better at being team leaders, then that will be seen as a mitigator of some of the evaluation apprehension that you well, describe. So I think 
you can't just walk into a sim and say that this is going to be a safe experience. Like Victoria was saying, it's it's too perfunctory. Um, I, I wonder, so w- all of us uh, are lucky enough to work in places where we have access to a lot of space, time, and resources for SIM, which is a really, which is a really great thing. And SIM is already part of the emergency medicine culture. And obviously, we've talked a lot about how to make that culture more effective and better, and to change that culture into a stronger version of it. But, but we all understand the role that SIM plays because, you know, we do have things we need to train on that we just can't train in real life enough, and we have things that we do all the time that we need to get better at in a way that's like easy to iterate and, and safe and fun. Hopefully it's fun. Most of the time it's fun. Um, and what do we do though for, or what's your advice though for the folks that are listening to this that are maybe performing in high intensity emergency adjacent spaces where either that's not part of the culture or they don't have access to that. So if I'm, if I'm a pre-hospital paramedic in a low resource setting, if I'm a jujitsu expert, if I'm a entrepreneur and I'm listening to this podcast because I care about performance under pressure, how do I take the principles of SIM and apply that outside of a space where SIM is already the culture? Yeah, really important question. And, and I think I answer that now with much less worry than I used to five years ago. I used to think that we needed a lot of the stuff that I have, uh, whereas I think now with a responsibility across our health service, not just in emergency medicine, I use a lot of techniques that involve no mannequins, no simulated patients. And I'll give you an example of that. So we've been working with a maternity group on postpartum hemorrhage and in particular the teamwork around postpartum hemorrhage. And it's very interesting because they don't have a, at least where we work, they don't have a cultural norm about roles and role allocation. And I think it's partly because the midwives and the obstetric doctors have a lot of cross skill sets. And so a lot of people can do anything in that room. So their roles aren't necessarily as clear um, by design. And then they haven't worked on that in teamwork. And so, yes, we've done some things that look like traditional sim with traditional simulated patients or mannequins working on, hey, it's a PPH, let's go in and give a blood transfusion and do the uh, bimanual massage and do all the drugs that we normally do for PPH. But, in fact, what we found is really useful, but we can only do that, you know, once every two weeks, once a month. You don't get the numbers of dose of sim to really help people think about this all day every day and so what uh, they've designed is a game called flat maggie where they just roll out this picture of a pregnant woman onto a table they give people little roll cards and in five minutes they do a micro scenario that just involves people walking in saying hey i'm the team leader uh so drugs person what's the story and they have a little bit of information other people have a bit of information about the vital signs they talk through it they make a plan they recap they're done and then they have another scenario. And so they can do that at handover. They can do that um, in their smart courses. They can do it in in-service times. So it's about the learning conversations is the answer to your question. And it's about the teams getting together, having something that represents the challenge of performance that you're trying to work on, and then getting a chance to talk about it. Uh, the other one that we often play is the sort of uh, keep talking and no one gets hurt, the bomb diffusing game. Uh 
lots of other things where people can talk about shared mental models and uh, how they communicate uh, where they're up to in their performance uh, with help from others. And so I think there's lots of simulations that we can use that do not involve mannequins or simulated patients or even a whole lot of dedicated time. So and I think we've underutilised those in the sim community because we have got a lot of skills and technical skills. But I think if you look at the simulations that people do at the Harvard Business School or all sorts of other places, they are sort of cognitive level but they all involve having a challenge, having to share information, having to share concepts, having to make decisions and prioritisation. And I think so much opportunity for us to do things that are non-technology-based sim. Oh, wow. I love, I love that so much. The flat Maggie game. I, like, I can't wait to, I can't wait to figure out a way to play that in our ER. Like what, what an amazing, what an amazing way to describe that. And that, that thing you said right at the end really, really strikes me because what, what is it necessary? What are, what are the core necessary components to create a thing like flat Maggie in a space where you need to do it. Right. And I think you named some of them, which is that you have to have a mission. Like, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to sim? You have to have a sense of team involvement and team buy-in in it. And you have to have, well, I guess I'd ask, do you have to have somebody outside of the sim who's watching and sort of role-playing with it? Or is it enough to just have a, an idea that you're going to sort of iterate around together? And I guess in a broader sense, my question mm. is, what are the core involvements of building something like that? <laughs> Yeah, no, I think you've named them quite well. And I think this comes down to when you are designing any kind of simulation intervention or team training intervention, having a deep understanding of what the team uh, constraints, opportunities, challenges and strengths are is important. And then designing the program to target those things. And in this case, it was role allocation, but it wouldn't have to be. Sometimes prioritization, decision making may be more important. The reality is all those midwives and obstetric doctors know what you need to do in a PPH. It's just about how do you get it done and distribute the workload effectively. Uh, so I think it comes down to understanding what that team is. And then your other question is, do teams need a facilitator to learn best? And I think that depends a little bit. Like I think there are some teams who are well-versed in what they're trying to do who can facilitate themselves, so to speak, and, and people are good at that. I think most teams will benefit from having a coach. And uh, so I often think about myself in that role when I work with the intensive care team or the maternity team, I, and that's often how I introduce myself. I said, I'm not here to tell you how to do your jobs. You know that much better than me, uh, but I'm here to be your team coach and maybe hold up a mirror uh, to the performance things that you are finding troubling and maybe to ask you some questions and to get you to think about some things that might uh, that you might decide to do differently if you want to get better. Yeah, so I would echo a lot of what Victoria says, and I think it's it's interesting hearing how we have come to similar things as you progress along simulation. I think initially, as you're learning to be a simulation educator, you're very attracted to the bells and whistles and fancy mannequins, and they are exciting and they have a place. But the time that it really crystallized to me that that's not what the heart of simulation is, is when I was deployed and we didn't have access to a simulator. And we wanted the group that was there had never done a uh, thoracotomy together, an emergency thoracotomy. So me and the surgeon were like, let's just walk through it. Let's get, let's get the whole team together and let's just walk through this. And so we had one of our corpsmen get up on on the litter and we had the team members in there and we talked through the case and we actually got the equipment that we would need. And then we we're like, oh gosh, well, the thoracotomy trays in the OR and it's tucked in this place that isn't, the ED people don't know where it's at. And then we also learned that on the litter, 
um, which any military folks listening, um, when you try to go to put the finished shadow in, it bumps into the the part of the litter. So we learned if we had to do this, we were going to need to put a roll under the person's shoulder to bump them up to be able to get the finished shadow in. And that is such like a very, um, it's so in my mind that we would have never learned all of that without the walkthrough. So my advice is to somebody, wherever you are in whatever you do, I'm always going to tell you to make it more active. Get people out of their chairs. Stop talking about it. That's nice. Give a lecture maybe once. I don't even know if you should give the lecture. I would much prefer that you spend your time getting people out of their chairs, into their space, walking around, and actually actively thinking and operationalizing that like, oh, well, we would go get this. We'll actually go get it because half the time you find out somebody doesn't know where it's at. It's not there. It's broken. Um, so that's really the benefit. And, and that's, so you don't need to, in my opinion, even purchase a piece of simulation equipment to operationalize a lot of these concepts into your spaces. So if, if the equipment is what's stopping you from doing this in your emergency department or cath lab, then just stop that, um, and start with the walkthroughs. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Totally love it. And you're really hitting on this idea of using SIM to explore the difference between work as imagined and work as done. If you take the sort of human factors approach to all of this, right? Like you want to see how the work is done and, and then really drive into it. She's just, just yesterday we were operating on a, you know, a, a quick assist from a refractory VFib arrest, trying to get them to the ECMO suite as quickly as possible. And we'd done some thinking and we'd done some planning and then we ended up, you know, we had this phenomenally wonderful approach and everybody like was hitting on all cylinders and things were great. And then we started walking to the wrong elevator. And it's just one of these like, you know, massive things where you get this whole brilliant, beautiful system. And, and at the end of the day, like, oh, you picked the wrong elevator to walk to. Thankfully, still, we had very good outcomes from the case. And it was, it was great. But, but that idea of, of deciding and, and, you know, using this to target the work is done, I think is such a powerful, powerful concept from that. Um, I want to, uh, yeah. And if I could just really emphasize that, Dan, that's, oh, sorry. What I was just going to say very quickly is I think why we're drawn to simulation is it constantly forces you to do, to actually do the thing, to actually see if it works instead of this, like in my head, this is how it's going to go. Oh, I read this. Uh, passage on thoracotomy, and you know, I've really reviewed it. I, th- I think I would really do a good job if that happened. Where in sim, you know, you got to put your money where your mouth is, and there's going to be an outcome. Um, and that is to me, I'm just so drawn to how powerful that that is, and what a you know, what a beautiful chance um, we have to make improvements when it's a sim and that wasn't after a case where we're having to discuss um, and learn that, you know, we went to the wrong elevator um, on a, you know, on a real case. Yeah. And it really emphasizes the simulation as diagnostic role, not just uh, intervention therapeutic for our teams, but exploration is at least as important as fixing or embedding. 
So, so cool. Well, I, I, I want to bring us towards the end of this and, and to thank both of you all for coming on and talking about this. I think we've really hit, you know, some incredible gems, you know, from this idea of, of simulation as diagnostic to the flat Maggie game, to the um, understanding the way that we can create and, and, gen, and sort of generate psychological safety around our teams who are doing um, doing simulation and just, just so, so cool. Um, before we end, I wonder if either or both of you want to issue a challenge to the folks listening to this, something that they can, um, they can do better in the next week or better in the next shift as they get going. Uh, yeah, I'm going to maybe just pull on what we were talking about there, find opportunity and maybe connect with something Andrew was saying about doing, you know, clinical debriefing and the environment, uh, the real work environment, but also think about bringing some of this uh, team training in its simple and light way into our clinical work and actually think about how do we get together at the beginning of a shift, say hello, uh, do a equivalent of a flat Maggie game for us in four or five minutes and then set ourselves up for success on the shift. So think about simulation, not just in situ, but actually embedded within our shift as part of our um, team get-togethers and briefing at the beginning of a shift. There you go. Yeah, so my challenge would be to really try to the best of your ability and the influence that you have to extend the simulation beyond your immediate, you know, if you're an emergency physician that is just among you and and the residents, that you extend it into these interprofessional um, and interdepartmental. I think that's a really it's a very powerful tool when I've seen it done well. You know, I actually love the idea if if there's a department that you're struggling with, well, one, I think you should do a journal club and have some drinks together because um, once people break that bread together, they get along better. But then I also think you should do some Sims together. Um, and I, I think it, it does, um, it gets people interacting and talking and, you know, seeing things from different perspectives. And I, I, I've seen it shift culture. So that would be my challenge is I know it's laborious to make plans with other departments, but I think it's part of what we need to break down some of these silos and, and build more collaborative relationships in the hospital. Mm, lovely. So good. Andrea, Victoria, thank you both for coming on the podcast. It is totally a joy to get to talk to you about this. So much fun. Great to talk to you both. Yes. Thanks, Dan. Thanks.